smart thing, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, Lord, you teach, we listen, let your spirit guide and direct. We ask for your blessing upon everything going on in the back with the kids. And just thanks for the time to be here tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, generally with Wednesdays, let's just be honest, it's a struggle to get here. A lot of you have put in a full day's work. Some of you that work third shift are going into work in a few hours. And so Wednesdays, you know, we like it to be a little bit of an oasis, a little bit of a break, just to come get refreshed, get built back up. So with that mindset of something refreshing and uplifting, tonight's message is all about dying. So now, this is not the Ecclesiastes dying. Now, in Ecclesiastes, when we talked about dying, it was the depressing dying. Here in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, this is the exciting dying. This is the exciting dying of dying and you're going home to heaven, you get to be with Jesus for all of eternity. That's the difference between Ecclesiastes and Corinthians. Now, the longer I walk with the Lord... When I, when I first got saved, uh, it's been 18 years ago when I first got saved, people talked a lot about the end and Christ returning, and there was kind of this, oh, muffled excitement, if you will. Now it seems like as we just keep walking longer and longer here on this earth, more and more Christians that I run into just are simply saying, wow, I just can't wait for his return. You know, just he's coming back. Things are happening here. And there's this almost underlying excitement of, you know what, Lord, something's going on here. It's exciting to see what God is doing. I tell you, I don't know if I've ever seen a time where I've seen so many uh, difficult situations happening. Life situations, family situations, marriage situations, but yet at the same time, so much good fruit coming out of this. Boy, people are getting saved left and right, and it's just neat to see what the Lord's doing. It's an exciting time to see that. So when you look at this passage here about the end, this is not the depressing end, this is the exciting end. Jump back, if you will, and let's go ahead and start in verse 11 of chapter 4. Actually, let's go back one more time, and let's go back to verse 8. This is what we finished with two weeks ago. It says, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And that's what we ended with two weeks ago. We talked about how in verses 8 and 9, how many of us are in that position right now? We're hard-pressed, we're crushed, we're perplexed, we feel possibly forsaken, but yet you always remember Christ is there with you, getting you through that. And that's what we finished with two weeks ago. But that's the stepping stone now to verse 12. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And that's a really interesting concept. As we die, we live. I like that. As, as my body gets one day closer to death, I'm actually getting one day closer to real life in Christ. And it's also flipped, too. As I get closer to life in my relationship with Christ, I'm really dying more and more to myself. See, we look at life and death as almost contrary terms, where the Bible is saying, no, when you really look at it from a spiritual perspective, the idea of dying and living really go hand in hand. And this is something Christ taught numerous times in the Gospels. In the book of Matthew, he made a couple references to this concept of, of living and dying almost at the exact same time. I'm just going to use a couple references here, and you can write these down and look at them later. Matthew 10.39 Matthew 10, says, He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That concept of as you die, you live, and as you live, you die. And in Matthew 16, verse 25, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And let's just repeat those points. 
as I get closer to physical death, I'm getting closer to real life in Christ. And as I get closer to my walk with Christ on this earth, I'm really getting closer to death in the sense of I'm dying to myself and my sinful desires. And that's what Paul is talking about here in verse 12. Then death is working in us, but life in you. This idea of life and death together. Now let's build on this. Verse 13. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise up us with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Turn, if you will, to Psalm 116 real quick, because that verse that's quoted in the middle of verse 13, I believed and therefore I spoke is from Psalm 116. Turn to that, if you will. What Paul's talking about here is this idea of the faith we have in death. See, the concept of death is frightening. It's scary to to the vast majority of people. And it says in the book of Hebrews that the enemy actually has the power of the fear of death. You go into work and you start talking to your co-workers about death. If they don't have a relationship with Christ, they're going to have fear. Because there's that fear of the unknown. There's that fear of what happens after life. And so what Paul is trying to say here is there's an element of faith that comes in death. That element of faith is if Jesus rose from the dead, which we just studied on Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead, well, that means he's also going to bring us back from the dead too. Now, you've got to remember, that's a faith thing. There is that element of trust that when you're lying there on the deathbed and you take your last breath, there's an element of faith that as soon as I'm done here on this earth, I'm now in heaven. And that element of faith comes from seeing what God did with Christ and the tomb being empty that brings us to that element of faith. Psalm 116 it's really the death chapter. Every funeral I think I've ever done, I always go to Psalm 116. Because it's a psalm about death. Verse 1. I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my supplications, because he's inclined his ear to me. Therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Now the concept of death, verse 7, is a very, very encouraging passage. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. I usually use that verse when we're doing the graveside part of it because there is that finality. There's that finality of death when you're there at the cemetery and there you are and that casket is laying there in front of you. That hole is right there. The Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Return to your rest, O my soul. Now this chapter only works if you're saved. If you're not saved, you're not returning to your rest. Uh, God is not being merciful and preserving the simple, etc., Look at verse 8. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I love verse 9. Because when I'm doing a funeral and I talk about somebody who is at the end, maybe dying of something very destructive, the cancer or some other physical ailment, I love to talk about verse 9 and try to tell people they are walking before the Lord in the land of the living right now because they have a new body. And now that's an encouragement. Now if you're not saved, it's not an encouragement. As a believer, it's an encouragement. And now you see where Paul got verse 10. I believed, therefore I spoke. See, the writer of Psalms is saying, I'm saying this in faith because I believe, even though I haven't tasted death yet, the writer of Psalms is saying, I believe this is what's going to happen. So I'm saying it and I believe it. Jump ahead, if you will, real quick to verse 15. 
Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. See, we look at death as despair, discouragement. God looks at it as something precious. Isn't that a fascinating concept? God looks at our passings as precious because he finally gets to get, take his kids home for all of eternity. We look at death as sorrow and despair. And don't get me wrong, death is very sad. There's a loneliness, there's an emptiness when you lose a loved one. There's no way around that. But when you look at it from a spiritual perspective and you look at it from Psalm 116 and you see this idea of God bringing rest to my soul, God having us walk before the Lord in the land of the living, God saying precious in the eyes of me is the death of one of my saints. You really see death from God's perspective. And death from God's perspective is actually a beautiful thing. With that mindset, jump back now, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul, therefore, using verse 13 of I believed and therefore I spoke, he's saying there is an element of faith here, saying once again in verse 14, if I believe that Christ rose from the dead, I also believe, verse 14, that God will raise me from the dead. Just as the tomb was empty on Easter, God will bring me up from the dead too. Now, do we believe that? If we believe that, it takes us to verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Paul writes, if you believe this, verse 15, grace will spread through many. Because what will happen is my life will be affected by believing and trusting that God will bring me back and take me home to heaven in all of eternity. So therefore, as I have that element of faith and I believe that God's grace saves me, well, then verse 15, I will take that grace and spread that through many, many people. Because it affects me, I want to affect them. How many times have we said out here, what is your sole purpose in life? To worship and to witness. Those are the two W's that God has called us to be. Well, verse 15 shows us that if we believe, verse 14, that Jesus rose from the dead, that we will rise from the dead, Paul says, well, then you're going to do verse 15. You're going to take grace and spread it around everybody you meet because you want them to experience that same thing. Because you know what, guys? Death is all around us. Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. David wrote that. How many of us have ever been in the shadow of death? Maybe not yourself, but your loved ones. One of the songs the worship team sang tonight, and I wrote down the lyrics. I believe it was from the song, You Are in Control. And it says, I could walk through the valley of death, and I won't be afraid. Now, how can we sing that? I could walk through the valley of death, and I won't be afraid. The way we can sing that is because you know where you go when you die. And if you know where you're going to go when you die, well, then the valley of the shadow of death really doesn't intimidate you. Because there's nothing to be afraid of. Because you know... Your Heavenly Father is waiting on the other end. With that mindset of death now, you see in the whole scheme of eternity what matters. Now, we'll stop there for a second because it kind of changes pace here a little bit. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about the subject of death and God saying death works in us actually for life? Yeah, Ryan. Amen. And that, and that is the ultimate form of healing. And, and I've said this before, and, and hear what I'm saying and understand the full picture. Ultimately, every one of us will be healed. We all will be healed. Now, a lot of us want to be healed physically on this earth. Some that happens, some that doesn't. But ultimately, we all will be healed in heaven. And Paul gets into that in chapter 5, which we're going to get to a little bit, this idea of the tent being destroyed, being replaced with the house. Good point there, Ryan. Anybody else got anything they want to say before we move on? Now, with that mindset, look at verse 16. Therefore, you always got to remember, I remember Pastor Craig always used to say, you have to look, why is it therefore? Therefore, we do not lose heart. You don't lose heart. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead, verse 14. You will rise from the dead, verse 14. What else matters? 
Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. You're dying. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Every day, I just wrote down this verse. His mercies are new every morning. Every day you wake up, you get to walk in the grace and mercy of salvation. Yeah, your body's falling apart. That's a fact. But every day you wake up, isn't it amazing that salvation, grace, and mercy are there? Verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far, far more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, verses 17 and 18 are what I call the refrigerator verses. If you have an issue in your life, and let's just be honest, you allow little things to get to you, Verses 17 and 18 are for you. I looked up that phrase there, idea of light affliction in verse 17. That word light also can be translated quick. Now, the affliction can be light, but it also can be quick. And you may say, well, this isn't quick. I've been struggling with this for months. In the whole scheme of eternity, months is nothing. I've been struggling with this for years, for decades. And the whole scheme of eternity, decades, are nothing. It's a light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now, that's easy to say and hard to accept and do. I like how the New Living Translation translates uh, verse 17. I'm just going to read that to you real quick. It says in verse 17, the New Living Translation, it says, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. How true is that? Our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Now some of you may be sitting here saying, My troubles aren't small. I'm going to tell you right now, and compared to eternity, everything we face is small. Well, it's been lasting for a long time. Compared to eternity, everything we face is not lasting very long. Now, the truth of the matter is, according to this world, some troubles don't seem small, and they don't seem quick. I'll be the first one to say that. This perspective that is needed here in verses 17 and 18 only comes from that deep relationship with the Lord. Because if you do not have that deep relationship with the Lord, let's just be honest, light afflictions become big afflictions. Afflictions that last for a moment seem like they're lasting for an eternity. Paul is trying to tell us here that eternal perspective. What did we just talk about Sunday? Matthew 6.33 Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. If you put God first, everything else falls into place. When I am facing a light affliction which only lasts for a moment, if my eyes get off the Lord, that light affliction sure doesn't seem light. It doesn't seem like it's lasting for a moment and to be quite honest with you, I could care less about the exceeding and eternal weight of glory at that moment. I don't care about glory. I'm brought down. Paul says keep the eternal perspective. What does he say in verse 18? Reread this. While we do not look at things which are seen, the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. If you keep your eyes on this world and the events of this world, you'll be discouraged, you'll be depressed, and you'll be in despair. Because that's all this world has to offer. That's Ecclesiastes. But if you keep your eyes on the Lord, the things which are not seen, things that are eternal, Boy, he gets you through it, doesn't he? He absolutely gets us through it. God promises us that. And as we look through these things that are momentary and temporary, it takes us right into chapter 5, just like we were talking about there with Ryan's question. Your body is a momentary, temporary thing. Verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house, that's our body, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. How many of you here tonight, verse 2, are groaning earnestly in your tent? You're so sick and tired. Don't actually raise your hand. <laughs> Good thing we don't videotape the messages. Um, we groan. Let's just be honest, we do. Our bodies absolutely fall apart. 
And that's a fact of it. And you, and you look at this idea of your bodies falling apart, and I love this picture, once again, of our bodies being a tent. You've heard me use this example before. We like camping, we love camping, but there's a reason why we don't live in tents. You don't want to live in a tent. Those people that say, oh, I love camping, you love camping for a momentary time. But to truly live in a tent 365 days a year, all that time, no one wants to live in a tent forever. That's why you leave your tent when you're done camping and you go back to your house. Well, your body is a tent. And to really stop and say, Lord, I don't want to die, I think God would just sit up there in heaven and scratch his head. Why would you want to be in a tent? For all of eternity, you want to be in a mortal body. Verse 2, that you're groaning earnestly. You want to be done with this. God says, trade your tent. Look at this description one more time in verse 1. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Wow, that's a wonderful idea. The glorified body. Takes us back to Psalm 116. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. You get to walk before the Lord. Isn't that tough? When you've been around a loved one that's passed away, and let's say it was a long, tough struggle with death, the only memories you have are the bedridden, the pain, the misery. But I understand this concept of that tent is now gone, and they have that eternal home, that eternal body in the Lord. That's what brings us peace. That's what Paul is trying to tell us here, is keep this mindset. Verse 3, If indeed having been clothed, we should not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, does that not describe physical pain and problems? Groaning and burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality, our, our flesh, may be swallowed up by life. Now, some of you may not be groaning physically, but I bet you're groaning and burdened spiritually or emotionally. See, that's part of the blessing of heaven, too. It's not just the physical new body. Can you imagine getting up to heaven and not having worry, not having stress, not having an anxiety? spiritually, emotionally, and physically made whole. Now that sounds like a good idea to me. And Paul says, with that mindset, why would death bother us to be made complete? Verse 5, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Can you imagine? God himself has prepared you for all of eternity with a brand new body, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well, please, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. See, God says in verse 5, he goes, you have a hard time believing this whole death, life after death thing? He goes, the Holy Spirit is the down payment that lives inside of you to promise you that there's something more coming. And some Bibles even translate it, that idea of a down payment. That's a neat picture. That you want that house, and the bank says you need to put 20% down. You put 20% down, it's now your place. God says, you're mine. How do I know that I'm his? He goes, I've given you the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is a down payment to show that you're going to get something better for all of eternity. I love that idea. And so it's therefore, since I have that mindset, verse 6, I'm confident. I'm confident knowing that there's something better for me after I die. And that confidence comes from, verse 7, faith. See, we always quote that verse. We walk by faith, not by sight. The context of that verse is death. That you are confident in faith that there's something better for you once we die. And look again, once again, Paul says in verse 8, he repeats, we are confident, yes, not even confident, well pleased. Paul says to go home to die, that's the good stuff. See, Ecclesiastes, when Solomon spoke about death, 
Oh, it was the depressing death. We all die. What's the point? What goes on? It's just not worth it. Paul, when he writes about death, he goes, yeah, I get to die. Kind of exciting to think about all this, be made whole physically, spiritually, emotionally. That's pretty neat. It's a faith thing. It's a confidence thing. And we have to say, okay, Lord, I see that. I know that. I want that. Now, it's important, though, that we do these last three verses. Because so often we treat these as two different subjects. We treat verses 1 through 8 as this wonderful little great teaching on death, and it's exciting. And then verses 9 through 11 kind of are a separate teaching. They go right together. Therefore, therefore we know we're going to die. We know we're going to stand before the Lord. Therefore, we know this is going to happen. We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Isn't that one of the goals of your life, is to please the Lord? What you want to hear in Matthew 25 is, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what you want to hear. And so therefore, that is your goal, that is your aim, that when you die, that you hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter the joy and rest of your Lord. Now think about that. If you wanted to pick something that you hear when you die, what is it? Well done, good and faithful servant. You know, I mean, you've heard this joke before. It's the classic old joke. And it was the three guys that were talking and they said, hey, what do you want people to say at your funeral? The first guy says, I was a great dad, a great father. The second guy says, I was a great member of society. The third guy says, I want them to say, look, he's moving. You know, that idea of, of what do you want people to say? Well, you want the Lord to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I heard a pastor friend say one time, he goes, you don't want to hear, well, fairly good job, lukewarm servant. No, well done, good and faithful servant. Verse 9, that's your aim. If that is not your aim in life right now, you really need to take some time and sit back and say, okay, God, what what is my aim and purpose in life? If if it's not to hear well done, good and faithful servant, what what am I doing down here? Because why do we want to hear well done, good and faithful servant? Verse 10, we must all, who has to appear? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we all well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Paul says the reason you want to hear well done, good and faithful servant, he says, you're going to stand before God. You're going to stand before God and give an account of everything you've done on this earth for him. Wow. Now, I have to make this abundantly clear. There are two main judgments that we talk about. First one is the judgment seat of Christ. This is for believers and believers only. This is, I like to use the phrase, this is your job review. When you die and stand before the Lord, this is your job review where God says, what did you do with the opportunities that I've given you? How did you serve me? With the gifts I've blessed you with, or as the parable of the talents say, with the talents I've given you, what have you done for me? This is not a judgment of salvation. This is only for believers. It's that job review. And what happens at the end of this judgment seat of Christ is you are going to be rewarded for all of eternity, for what you have done. Now, there's generally somebody at this point that says, well, I don't care about rewards. I'm just glad to be in heaven. I care about rewards. Because the Bible says to store up treasures in heaven. God wants me to care about rewards. And why do we care about rewards? Because the Bible seems to hint in the book of Revelation, whatever rewards I'm given, I get to lay down right at the feet of Jesus. So it's this fascinating concept of I work for the Lord to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because I know I'm going to stand before him and give an account of what I've done for him, and as he blesses me with these rewards for all of eternity, I don't carry this stuff around on my head and neck and shoulders to show it off to everybody. I take those rewards that he's given me right back, and I put them right at his feet and say, Lord, I did it for you. That's the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a judgment of salvation. It's for believers only. It's your rewards And it's to say, what did you do with the opportunities that God has given you? Now, compare that to the great white throne judgment and Revelation 19, 
That is for non-believers, and that's where non-believers are sentenced to eternity in hell. Don't confuse the two. You want judgment seat of Christ. Believers, you're rewarded. What did you do with the opportunities God gave you? Great white throne judgment. Non-believers, sentenced to hell. So Paul says the reason we think back to verse 14, that God raised up Jesus, he'll raise up. The reason we don't lose heart in verse 16, the reason we don't allow the light afflictions to bother us, the reason we don't mind losing our tent, the reason we walk by faith and confidence is because of verses 9 through 11. You'll stand before the Lord, and I'll stand before the Lord. And God says, what did you do? That's why we do all this. It's because we want to, verse 9, to make it our aim to be well-pleasing to the Lord. That's the goal of what we do down here. That's the eternal perspective. Because, verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That word terror is a pretty tough word, isn't it? But you know what the Bible says? To fall into the hands of, a, of an angry God. It's a scary thing. That word terror actually means also reverence. We know the terror of the Lord. I know there's a hell. I know, the, the, I know the terror of that. I don't want anybody to go to hell. I know what hell is, so therefore I want to persuade men to have a relationship with Christ. But also out of my reverence of the Lord, of my Father, I love my Father. I want everybody to meet my Father. I want everybody to meet my Father's Son, Christ. So therefore, out of reverence for my, my Father, I want to tell people about Christ too. And so we know the future, verse 11. We know the background, and therefore that is what spurs us on to do verse 9, to be well-pleasing to God. When you put this whole passage together, you finally get the full picture of what death is. It's a really a beautiful transition into life. And what a blessing it is to be rewarded for what we've done down here, but to take those rewards and give them right back to Christ. Does anybody have any final questions, comments here before we close up? Yeah, John. Yeah, and, and that's a very good point there of, you know, people talk about wanting to live forever. I don't know anybody that really wants to live forever down here. Uh, this world reaches a point of what does this have to offer? And like you said, it's just a tent. Why would you want to live forever in this tent? Anybody else have anything that we say here before we close up? All right, let's pray then. Heavenly Father, um, 